Father, we do thank you for this morning. This is the day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and to be glad in it and to meet with you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever since I visited um, the Kennedy Space Center a few weeks ago, I'm sort of on this, this rocket NASA kick. Um, so raise your hand if you've ever seen a rocket launch live or um, on the TV. A number of us have seen those. When I was down there in Orlando, I shared this last week, but we were um, some 60 miles away in Orlando, but we could still see a, a rocket launch. It was an unmanned SpaceX launch, and it was pretty neat to get to watch this thing uh, fly into outer space. Uh, so if you weren't here last Sunday, we did talk uh, about rocket launches. The, they are these fiery explosions. Somebody compared it to sitting on top of a bomb, and it, it enables a human being to go into outer space, to defy gravity. It's an incredible thing that we have done. It's an incredible thing to watch. Well, we are in the season of Pentecost, and we've been looking back to Acts chapter 2, which tells us the day of Pentecost and what happened on that day. And I've compared it to a fiery explosion of the gospel, because the Holy Spirit came upon the disciple as tongues of fire, and then they exploded out into the streets, um, preaching and sharing in languages they didn't even know the mighty works of God. The Holy Spirit did this language miracle, which enabled all the foreigners gathered for the big festival in Jerusalem to hear what God had done in their own native tongues. And then Peter stands up, and he preaches the gospel. He explains what is happening. And in response, about 3,000 people were convicted in their hearts, and they turned to God in faith. It was a powerful day. It was the launch of the church what we might give to have been there, to have watched that explosion of the gospel. But what happened next? What happened after the great spectacle? I mean, we can imagine the crowd would have subsided. The excitement might have died down. Because that's what happens with a real rocket launch, right? You watch it, it's exciting, it's incredible, but then it disappears. And then everyone disperses. And they go about their lives. But what happened after the day of Pentecost? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've been away, we're in the book of Acts, and we're going to be here for a few more weeks. These are my last Sundays with you. And I wanted to spend them looking at what the Holy Spirit was doing in the early church. Now, there is a danger we have when studying the book of Acts to idealize the early church. It's important that we not idealize them because they had problems, they had dysfunctions, they had internal struggles, they had external struggles. They were made up of sinners just as we are. Nevertheless, it is a powerful thing to do. Go back and look at what the Holy Spirit did in the earliest days of the church and ask ourselves, is there something of that that could still carry on today? And the answer is yes. And the reason it's yes is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the same then as it is now. And so what he did and what he wants to do carries on in great power. And so we're going to look at the early church. Last week, the focus was on the gospel. And we looked at Peter's sermon because it's the gospel that launches the church into God's mission and purposes in the world. 
A church without a gospel is like a rocket without any fire. It's just an empty structure. It's not going anywhere. So if you didn't hear that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because we we asked, what is the gospel? And we looked at that in some different ways. It's foundational to understanding what is the church. But today we're going to consider that question, what came next? After the big fiery explosion, day of Pentecost, big spectacle, exciting, what came after that? Well, unlike a rocket launch, people did not just disperse back into their ordinary lives. Something new had been formed. The gospel that was preached in the power of the Holy Spirit not only saved those 3,000 individuals that day, it created a community. Because that's what gospel preaching does, friends. Gospel preaching and living creates gospel community. So today we're going to go back and we're going to look at the earliest description we have of gospel community, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're going to look at four characteristics of the early gospel community. The first one, we see it right away, verse 42, is joyful devotion. Luke says, Luke's the narrator, he's the writer of the book of Acts, he says that they devoted themselves, and then he lists a number of things. This word devotion, I want to linger here for a minute, it has the connotation of faithfulness or perseverance. Paul will use the same word in Romans 12 when he says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Be faithful, be devoted in prayer. So these early Christians, they were not passive or casual about gospel community. It wasn't just an add-on. It was a priority. It was a commitment. But it was a joyful one. Later in verse 46, Acts 2, uh, Luke describes the early gospel community as having glad and generous hearts. So this wasn't empty religious devotion. It wasn't devotion motivated by guilt. It was joyful. It was inspired. These were people who had been set free by the power of the gospel. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't pulling teeth to get them to be devoted. They wanted to. It flowed from their hearts. It was the natural response of a person captured by the gospel to want to spend time with others who were captured by the gospel and who loved Christ. In the last 2,000 years, has anything changed to suggest to us that devotion to gospel community is any less important? I can't think of anything. And yet for many, many Christians, devotion to gospel community, and that could be a local church or some sort of fellowship group on a campus or a group of missionaries serving together in a foreign country, that kind of devotion we don't see as devoted today in our world and in our culture. 2015, the Barna Group does a lot of um, stats. It did a, a faith study on Charlotte. And we quote this a lot because we were astounded by what we saw. It showed that 93% of Charlotteans self-identify as Christians. Now, that's their own definition, so that could be a lot of different things. But they do self-identify as Christians, 93%. 
But when you look further down in the report and you see some of the indicators of devotion and active involvement in a local church, that percentage drops way down, below 50%. And some indicators, things that we would think, okay, that's, yeah, that's devotion, like volunteering at church or being part of a small group, are below 33%. So that's a huge disconnect. You have all these people identifying with Christ in some way, with Christianity, and yet they have little to no devotion to his people. How can that be? How did the logic break down that being connected to Christ is being connected to his people? That to love the head Jesus but disregard the body, the church, doesn't make any sense whatsoever? Well, how could we address the disconnect? because we don't want to just sit around and quote statistics and complain about it. We want to see a joyful devotion recaptured in this church culture. We want to see it in ourselves. We want to see it in people who who maybe they know Christ, but they're disconnected from his body. So, So how could that be recaptured today? Well, I think the first thing is it's not going to work to guilt people into devotion. Even if that worked, you're not going to get joyful devotion. You're going to get some sort of guilt-driven religious duty. The other thing that's not going to work is trying anxiously to be relevant. The church has a ton of anxiety right now about its relevance to culture. I think the better question is the culture relevant to Christ because that is the center. It's Jesus that's on the throne. So if our primary strategy is we're going to create a relevance culture, then we're going to create a very shallow type of devotion. It's going to be a consumerist type of devotion. You, you might wow people for a while. You might get them interested. They might follow along. But as soon as things get a little dated, as soon as they get bored, as soon as something else that's shiny captures their attention, your devotion is going to decrease. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop trying to speak in ways that the culture can connect, can understand. We have to speak the language of the culture, right? Pentecost was a language miracle. It was, it was the day that these communication barriers were broken down so that the gospel could go forward. But I want you to notice that in that day, who was doing the breaking down? Who was the one overcoming the barriers? It was the Holy Spirit, right? The church was, was doing, was filled, was, was preaching, was, was teaching, was saying all these mighty works, but it was the Holy Spirit getting the point across. So I don't think the church needs to go out and, and spend a lot of anxious energy trying to be relevant to wherever the culture is going next. So guilt's not going to work. Anxious striving for relevance, not going to work. There's one thing that creates joyful devotion to gospel community, And that's the gospel itself. The gospel proclaimed and believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what creates devotion. That's what creates community. So the best thing that we can do is to preach and proclaim and live the gospel in total reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And we will trust the results to him. He has the power to transform a distracted heart a cold and apathetic heart into a heart full of joyful devotion to Jesus and his church. We don't have the power to do that. But we do have the ability to proclaim and to live the gospel and to trust the Holy Spirit to do what he does with that best. So that's a first characteristic of this early gospel community is joyful devotion. A second one we see is the apostles' teaching. 
And this is one of the things, one of the list of things that Luke notes their devotion to. He says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, at the time, there was no New Testament. Hadn't been written down yet. These were Jewish Christians, so they had the the Old Testament scriptures, and then they had the, the teaching of the apostles. The apostles were those who had been with Jesus, who had received his instruction and his commission personally, and they had borne witness to his resurrection. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 was a great example of apostles' teaching. It was teaching about Jesus, the mighty events of cross and resurrection, but it was, been, it was done so in light of the Old Testament. Again, Jewish Christians, they didn't think they were creating some new religion. They understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel's story, that Moses and Abraham and David, all of those storylines were coming together, those promises were being fulfilled in Christ. And so that was their practice. They would come together They would engage with the apostles' teaching. Now, eventually, their teaching got written down for us in what we call the New Testament. And so when we come together on a Sunday morning in a men's or women's study in a pastorate and we engage with the Scriptures, it's pretty neat because we're practicing the same thing that they practiced back then. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament and the Old. It's interesting that this is the first thing that Luke notes I don't know why that was. I don't know if there was a ranking for him, but I do think there is a primary place for the apostles' teaching. If our devotion does not begin there, then other things like our fellowship, like our prayers, are going to be unstable. The apostles' teaching is teaching the gospel, right? It's it's written it down, it's, it's teaching that to us, and it's the gospel that creates the community, not the other way around. It's the gospel that saves people. It's the gospel that allows people to receive this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's the gospel that transforms people's hearts into joyful devotion. And so you've got to put the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the gospel, right there in the beginning. There is no gospel community without that teaching. I think that seems pretty obvious, right? But again, there's far too many Christian communities that do not prioritize the apostles' teaching, either in overt ways of just denying its relevance, its power, its trustworthiness, or in subtle ways, their devotion is not to the apostles' teaching. The the scary thing is you can still form some pretty good, strong communities, some deep relationships, but without the apostles' teaching, it is not gospel community. It is something else. So that's the second characteristic. A third characteristic is the practice of life together. In verse 42, uh, Luke notes their devotion to the apostles' teaching and then to what he calls the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Uh, The Greek word here is koinonia, and it simply means sharing together in. Fellowship is actually not the most accurate translation. To be more precise, fellowship or community is what happens when Christians share something together. It's what happens when we do koinonia. Well, the primary thing that we share together is the faith. That's why the apostles' teaching is first. You have to share together the faith that creates the fellowship. But Luke mentions some other things that they share together. Meals. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. 
Now, back in, in the early church, uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, was celebrated in the context of a larger meal. And so they would come together, they would break bread, they would share a, maybe a potluck meal of some sort, and then in the midst of that, they would do the Lord's Supper. And so they were celebrating kind of both the, the informal and the more formal parts of eating together. I think even today in our culture, eating together, sharing a meal, going out to dinner, going to someone's home is a powerful thing. It's an intimate way to connect in relationship. That is even stronger in the Middle East, even today and certainly back in Jesus' time. You eat together, you are in fellowship together. That's why people got so upset with Jesus. You ate with tax collectors and sinners? Do you know what that means? That means that you're, you're approving of them in some way, that you are extending a relationship? You can't do that. Eating was a sacred thing. And that's right at the heart of gospel community. And we watch as the early church goes forward, they, they struggled with this because the eating together was beginning to threaten the social barriers of the day and it was beginning to break them down because slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile were all invited to Christ's table and sitting down at a meal together. So they shared meals together. They also shared possessions. One scholar noted that they radically valued people over possessions. They radically valued people over possessions. They put people, they put relationships first. It was also radical because it wasn't forced. They didn't have to abolish ownership of possessions. They didn't have to abolish private property. They didn't have to mandate certain things. It was all voluntary. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Why were they doing that? Because their hearts had been captured by a gospel. Their hearts had been captured by Jesus, the Lord, who had not preserved his own life, but given it away. They were doing it because the Holy Spirit had freed them from idols and from serving the God of money. And so it came naturally that they shared possessions, that they shared and met needs. And that was one of the ways that they formed this deep and rich community. I've got to see this happen at King of Kings. It's not showy, it's not announced with a trumpet, but there have been times where a need, sometimes a significant need, is identified in someone's family or someone's life, and other people quietly come together and pool some resources and meet that need. We also have a benevolence fund at this church you may not know about. Some of you have given to that. That's just a fund that's there for the church so that when different types of needs come up, that the church can meet those. Christians take care of their own. God has blessed some of his family with more material possessions and some not as much, but he's given to the community the ability to take care of the needs that arise. That's fundamental in gospel community. Uh, Luke also is going to describe the form of their gathering together. He notes, and I think this is really important, he notes that they gathered both in the temple courts and in homes. So the temple courts were uh, public gatherings and they were larger. Uh, the homes were more private, intimate gatherings and probably because of the restrictions of the home, they were smaller. From the very beginning, Christians have gathered in different ways and they're all important. You have your larger public gatherings, which for us is Sundays. You have your smaller groups, 
your things like a men or a women's group, a pastorate that happen often in people's homes. Both are important because God does different types of things in the different gatherings, large and small. Luke tells us about the frequency of their gatherings, and he says that it was daily. This wasn't an occasional thing for them. It was regular. That's part of gospel community. Again, I think we have gotten away from this. Part of it's because of modern life and modern cities. They work against consistent community. They make it difficult to be together frequently. We live far apart, which means we spend a lot of time by ourselves in cars commuting. And we have multiple, neighbor, we have multiple communities. We have neighborhood, we have church, we have work, we have other social groups. It's not necessarily bad, but it spreads us pretty thin. I think most significant is that we have lost a practice of Sabbath. And instead, we've replaced it. We've capitulated to the culture's concept of the weekend. And the weekend is defined by relaxation, recreation, and travel. Again, not bad things, but it's sort of squeezed out a more Christian understanding of Sabbath and what that means for the people of God. So the net effect of all of this is it's very difficult to be together with regularity in community, to, to live life together in some sense. And yet I don't think it's any less important. It's still critical for our own spiritual health as well as for the health of the local community, whatever that is, to be together frequently, to share the meals, to share the possessions, to share the burdens, to share the joys. Now, we don't live in first century Jerusalem, and we're not going back to it. We cannot fix the traffic problems. We cannot slow down the pace of modern life. This is the world we live in, for better or for worse. And so, how are we going to address it? Well, I think we can start by prioritizing. We need to realize it's going to take some degree of intentionality. We're not just going to accidentally fall into a more regular rhythm of community. We make space for things that we prioritize, right? We do that with our time. We do that with our money. It's easy to just kind of get busy, let things fill up our calendars, and feel all of a sudden stretched thin, unable to participate in different community things. And so there takes some degree of intentionality. I don't know any other way around it besides praying and sitting down and saying, okay, what are my priorities? And I'm going to put those things in the jar first, so to speak, so that it don't get squeezed out. But I think we also have to, again, common theme here in the book of Acts, rely on the Holy Spirit. He has so many ways of creatively, surprisingly connecting us to each other. Um, The other day, I I went out, I was meeting somebody from this church, and I ran into somebody else in the church, and we had a little connection. You've probably had that experience before. The Holy Spirit has ways of connecting us. He also has ways of of placing that little nudge in your heart of you think about someone, uh, you, you remember someone, and you have that little opportunity to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them. I'm going to form a connection. or I'm going to reach out. or I'm going to get a coffee or something like that. So it takes some creativity. It takes some leaning into the Holy Spirit because the culture is not going to help us here. It's busy. It's stretched thin. It's spread us apart. So those are our first three characteristics. Fourth and final one to look at today is expectant prayer. In verse 42, uh, another one of the practices to which they were devoted was the prayers. And then in verse 43, we're told that all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
So again, Jewish Christians, they had uh, normal practices and rhythms of prayer, some sort of liturgy that they followed. But for the early church, this wasn't some empty thing. Well, let's just get together and do this. It was alive. They were praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were praying expecting the God of the universe to hear their prayers and to do something. Do we pray like that today? Do we pray like that individually? Do we pray like that as a community? And if not, why not? Why don't I pray like that in my own life? Why don't we pray like that with more regularity as a community? Has something changed in the last 2,000 years? Do we, do we believe the Holy Spirit, that the sovereign God is any less involved in our world, that he cares less? I don't think so. And so we, we recapture this, this devotion to an expectant type of prayer. I think it was so alive for them for a few reasons. One, this was the community that had just witnessed the resurrection. It was alive. They they had seen the Lord who was dead come back to life. If resurrection defines your community, are there any limitations on what God can do? Is there anything too hard for God? I think the other thing is that there was just sort of a, it wasn't this weird uh, concocted manufactured thing. It was just signs and wonders, healings and powerful things just were sort of regular Christianity for them. Again, I know we don't see that as much in our churches. There's lots of reasons that might be the case. I don't think that it's sort of died out on purpose that the Holy Spirit says, nope, not doing any of that anymore. I think there, there might be a way that the Holy Spirit wants to continue to show powerful things among us. If you just keep walking through the chapters of Acts, you'll, you'll see how regular it was for them. Uh, chapter 3, Peter and John going up to the temple. They encountered a man who was lame from birth. He asked them for money. Peter responded, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. The man got up and walked. Chapter 4, they had experienced resistance and opposition, and they said, well, I guess we should go home and pack it up. Of course they didn't do that. They rejoiced. They gathered together. They, They felt the need to go to God in prayer as a community and say, would you give us boldness, God? Would you help us to continue to proclaim the word that it might spread? God answered the prayer. He shook the place where they were meeting, and they continued to go forward with the mission. Friends, a gospel community prays expectantly. We don't know how God is going to answer. That's where we get in trouble sometimes when we, we sort of demand that he acts a certain way or we put the guilt on somebody while well, he's not doing this in your life, so it must be your fault. Can't go down that road, but we can still ex- pray expectantly, believing that the Holy Spirit is alive, that he wants to shake his church and move the mission forward. We pray big, bold prayers because we serve an all-powerful God who raised up his son from the dead. After the gospel exploded into the world on the day of Pentecost, people did not disperse. They didn't go home because everything had changed and something new had been created, this gospel community of the church, defined by some key characteristics, this joyful devotion, the apostles' teaching, life together, and expectant prayer. Luke comes to the end of his passage in verse 47. And he just adds this one line. He says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
I love that for a lot of reasons. One is because it puts the emphasis on the saving, on the evangelism, all that sort of stuff, that the Lord is doing that by his Holy Spirit. Yeah, we have a role to play, but it's a sovereign act of the Lord that he is saving people and adding them to something. But that's the other thing it tells us is God's purpose in salvation is not to just save a disconnected set of individuals for himself that he can go relate to here and relate to here. His purpose from the beginning was to create and redeem a people for himself a people, a family. Wherever gospel community exists, where it reflects these characteristics that we see in Acts 2, I believe it's a reasonable expectation that God will add to it because he's out there in the world doing the saving and he will provide the growth. King of Kings is a gospel community, friends. We have been so from our earliest days. We continue to persist in that, and we embody these four characteristics. But I would suggest we always have room to grow in these characteristics as well. This is a very important time in the life of our church. It's a big transition as I step away and as Paisley and I uh, go to what God has for us. And I know that there is a tendency to pull back during a transition time, to get a little protective about oneself to, to think, well, maybe this is the time that I need to step back. But might I suggest that this is actually the time to press in? That this is a time to double down on our devotion to Christ in gospel community? This is a time to take a higher degree of ownership and service than we did before, to reprioritize what regular fellowship means with the body? Just one example, if you're still on the fence about the retreat, well, should I go to that or not? Go to it. It is one place where you're not going to be distracted by traffic and by all these other distractions that you have. It is a, a place where you can experience a taste of this Acts 242 community for a weekend and get a vision of what it means to bring that back into some sort of more regular form of life. Over the years, you all have expressed such heartfelt devotion to me, to Paisley, to our family, to our kids. I think a lot of you like our kids better than you like us, and we're happy with that. <laughs> Thank you for that devotion. It has meant so much to us, we will carry it with us. But if I could ask you anything, it is to take that devotion and to give it to Christ by giving it to this community, by asking the Lord, what, what role do you have for me to play in serving this body during this season? This is a time to press in. This is a time to be together. This is a time to embody the gospel in community. Let's pray.